Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. You know, being an MBA, being an engineer, all of a sudden I was jumping out of a plane and I thought, why do people do this? It didn't make any sense. So I kind of needed to dive in and find out empirically why is this going on? Of course, it's easier to focus on other people than yourself. So I looked at the research that had been on the, done on the Scottish community. One in 100 people who jump out of a plane do it a second time. So it's a very unique group. And then most people only stay in the sport three to five years. So it, they, they cycle out, they move on to other things. So it, it is an, an unusual, it's a tight filter of people that want to do this on a recurring basis. That led to then the research of to what extent is our risk inclination and our risk aversion indicative as to what we accomplish in life, both individually and also organizationally. And what risk posture is appropriate for an organization so that they can maximize the success and bolster their competitive advantage? So it all derived from that one time saying, I think I want to jump out of a plane because I think it'll make me a better person. What's up, guys? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershaz, and I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine is about two things. Number one, people are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world. Doing both of these despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews of world-class speakers and business leaders showcasing their origin story, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now, so it can help you step into your greatness within your own life, business, and career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years in entrepreneurship as a CEO to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation and messages, and I'm stoked to have you guys here. Guys, welcome to The Greatness Machine. Um, For those of you guys that are not new to the show, you know that we're about two things, people who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And my friend Jim is neither short of passion nor greatness. Now, for those of you guys that um, do not know Jim, First of all, I want to give a little bit of, of your your background just based off of how I met you. Did you mind if I start there? Fire away. So uh, there's there, there was a very specific reason I picked Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone because our man Jim here is in the Skydiving Hall of Fame, and he's a man of many, many talents. Um, one of my clients, who is also a guest on the show, Eddie Perez, was talking to me, and he said, you know, Darius, uh, you know, I, I just I got this guy that you got to meet. His name's... Jim McCormick, and he he spoke to my Vistage group, and this guy I, I, I may have the number wrong, but is it five thousand skydives? Is that the number? Five thousand one hundred thirty-three at this moment. <laughs> so he's like he's he he's a, essentially a, a professional skydiver, and has as you just heard the man say over five thousand jumps out of an airplane, and he does this amazing work around risk management, and now. The, the viewers and listeners that don't know me, well, don't know that I am like the man of risk measurement. Like I am like, a, a, like a, 
I, I should have been an actuary. Uh, what is it? Actuary? Is that what they're called? Like, yeah. I like stats and I like to look at risk all the time. Risk adjusted rewards. What's the risk? Well, I like putting in one unit of risk and get 10 units of reward. Like that, that's how my brain thinks. So I was like, oh, that sounds fascinating. And so Kenny, or excuse me, um, Eddie's like, oh man, you got, you got to meet this guy. We brought him in to our company, Equity Prime Mortgage. And, and he just has some really interesting thoughts around risk management. So, so man, welcome to the show, Jim. I'm so excited to talk to you today about your experiences, both in the air uh, as well as on the ground. And uh, man, welcome to the show. Got it. We'll make it relevant to your listeners. <laughs> so um, I do want to give your formal bio. Do you mind if I do that for a quick second? Away. I always like to give the origin and I give the formal. Guys, Jim is Jim McCormick is here and he is the director of development at the International Skydiving Museum and Hall of Fame. He's also a founder and president of Research Institute of Risk Intelligence. He's a motivational speaker, author of two books, The Power of Risk, How Intelligent Choices Will Make You More Successful. We're going to be talking about how they just came out with a significantly updated second edition, and the pre-sales are on Amazon for that, as well as his book, Business Lessons from the Edge. Man, I am so intrigued to, to just get started with that. Was, was that okay? Did I, did, I, did I miss anything? I know yeah, there's a you, lot. You did, you did pretty well there. <laughs> so... You know, what's funny is I, I Googled you before and I just want to, can I start with two like amazing facts that I found out about you? Sure. Okay. So first of all, is it true that you skydived into Pac Bell Park, uh, AT&T Park now on opening day and you delivered soil gathered from every major league baseball field in the entire United States to the new stadium? That is absolutely true. It was, it was really a wonderful story because there was a pitcher who was retired out of the Major League Baseball and his son, and they visited every park. And it was a father and son project, and they took a bucket with them, and they they would take some soil from each of the, the infield at each of the parks. And then it was kind of a christening of the new park that they had soil brought in. Now, if you want, which I thought was really cool, and we were given this, this great privilege. They gave us these bags of soil, and all of us had some, because if somebody didn't make the target, they wanted to make sure the soil was still there. So they gave us this the day before when we were prepping at the stadium. And I looked at it when I got home and I go to my Coleman. I go, man, I went outside and I put some in for my garden. And then I called my buddy. I said, Cameron, you're not going to believe in this, but bring some dirt over. I'll tell you why. So we got a, We added a little bit extra. <laughs> you're like, uh, uh, every major league park and my backyard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's a major league park in my life. It's, it's where, I, where I play baseball. Uh, that, that's amazing. And so the, the other the other thing that I thought was really cool is that you actually hold a world record. You have, uh, you have nine, nine, right? Is that correct? Fifteen. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Forget about one or nine. Let's just go straight <laughs> to double digits. So you have 15 world records. Would correct. you mind like giving us a few of those of what they are? Your well, sure. It, the, the primary world record is for the largest skydiving formation ever built. Um, the largest freefall formation in the history of the sport and the longest standing record. Um, and that was in Thailand in 2006, a team from 35 countries. We built a formation after a two and a half week effort of 400 skydivers. Wow. Wait, wait, wait. So 400 Actually, over 26,000 feet from five Hercules C-130s provided by the Royal Thai Air Force. It was an amazing production. It was all led by a, a phenomenal guy by the name of B.J. Worth who put the whole thing together over the course of two years. It was well, along with his co-captain, Larry Henderson, just amazing human beings and an amazing accomplishment. And now it's been – that record has stood for 15 years. Wait, wait. How many how many skydivers were there? 400. 400. And and so I'm, I'm, I'm relatively 
new to the to the to the sport of skydiving like as in like a complete novice outside of the fact that i understand what it is that you jump out of a plane so what does that mean 400 people jump out of a plane i mean is it one plane two planes how do you get 400 people i mean up in the yeah the reason we went to thailand is well they were gracious hosts but the air force the royal thai air force provided us with hercules c-130 aircraft which allowed us to get to 26,000 feet and put 80 skydivers in each aircraft which meant we could do this with five planes flying close together. Obviously, we'd all exit at the same time and then work to build in the formation, prescribed formation that was in the colors of the Thai flag that was held together for a total of seven seconds. So, so and how many times did you have to attempt this before you... We worked on it for two and a half weeks. So we didn't put the entire team in the air until the, near the end because you build incrementally from the center. So there's an exa- the classic example of risk management. First off, nobody jumps for three days after we arrive in Bangkok because everybody needs to adjust to the time change. It's not safe to be up there and not be 100%. And then we move the entire team to northern Thailand. We have over 500 in the team because we have a lot of support personnel and, and backup uh, jumpers. And then and then we practice at length on the ground. And initially, we only put up a group of 70 out of the 400 because that center part needs to get established before we can start building outward. And then we build incrementally in waves outward to where we can ultimately make sense to, tr- to take the risk of putting all 400 people in the air and doing it safely. And I'm pleased to tell you there were, there were no significant injuries during the entire event and it was successful. When you, when you say no significant in- injuries, my first brain's like, well, was there injuries then? Yeah. I mean, you're leaving a plane at 170 miles an hour. And one of the things you have to do because it's hard to control yourself is you, you at, at that speed, you're being basically kind of being launched out of a, out of a cannon you need to bring your elbows together and then cover your face shield. Why elbows together? Because if they're out, it's very easy to get a dislocated shoulder. That's an example of uh, a couple of the injuries that occurred. And just inevitably, you know, the only thing that occurs in skydiving is the ground. Sometimes if you approach too quickly, you end up, you know, doing something that makes it hard to walk. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, listen, if I jump out of a plane, I get, twist my ankle. I'm, 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 I don't, I won't be happy, but I, I'd be way happier than, than other, other potential outcomes. <laughs> Um, so I just want to go, I always start this with guests. I love to hear origin stories. So how does one think to themselves, I'm going to go become like one of the world's best skydivers. I think that, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Like what do we have for dinner tonight, honey? Oh, you know, steak. Yeah. By the way, I'm going to go start jumping out of planes a lot. (laughs) First, let me clarify I do not consider myself one of the world's best skydivers. I consider myself one of the world's most persistent skydivers, and that has served me well. I'm not innately gifted at the sport, but I've been very persistent in pursuing it, and that, that's, like I say, that's served me well. The, the answer is very simple, and there's a lesson in this. Um, the whole idea started from a book I read in, when I was in grade school. Uh, it was on my summer reading list. It was about commando training, and it had a part about parachuting. I was enamored of that. I read the chapter twice, and I know now that that's where the seed was planted. So my comment is be careful about what you put in front of your kids because it can have a long-term impact. Age 18, uh, we had a wonderful speaker uh, come to our high school and he talked about goal setting. I was so impressed by that. Before I went off to college that summer, I made a list of life goals and one was to do a single skydive. No intention of doing more than one saw purely as a personal development experience. The premise is Darius, we all have fears in our life. We are born with an innate fear of falling. And so my premise was, as we all know, if we do something that every cell in our body says is a bad idea and prevail, it's a confidence builder. And that was the whole sole motivation. 
I had no idea that I would fall, I would become enamored. I would do a second jump the same day. I've never done fewer than 100 jumps in a year um, and continue to this day. I've well, done over 150 this year alone. And that, pro- that pace is probably not going to abate anytime soon. That was the genesis of becoming a skydiver. So, so yeah. So like, it was like, uh, I have a neighbor that lives two doors down from me and he's, he's, he's a, like a local famous guy in Austin and arguably a famous guy in the United States in that he's, uh, the number one pit master in the, in the whole country. His name's Aaron Franklin. They actually have a master's class on his barbecue. Um, I don't know if you know, know of him or not, but, but I, I had a conversation with him because he's like, the guy's like on the food network for like making barbecue. Right. And I said, how, how'd you, how'd you get into um, barbecue? And, and, and the reason this just reminded me of this is, is I, I feel like you had a, a, a moment that I had with him. He said, you know, I didn't find barbecue, barbecue found me. And I'm like, it sounds like you didn't find uh, <laughs> skydiving, skydiving found you. And, and Darius, that was the genesis of what, what you and I are discussing about, because you know, being an MBA, being an engineer, all of a sudden I was jumping out of a plane and I thought, why do people do this? It didn't make any sense. So I kind of needed to dive in and find out empirically, why is this going on? Of course, it's easier to focus on other people than yourself. So I looked at the research that had been on this, done on the Scottish community. One in a hundred people who jump out of a plane do it a second time. Really? One in a hundred. So it's a very unique group. And then most people only stay in the sport three to five years. So it, they, they cycle out, they move on to other things. So it, it is a, an unusual, it's a tight filter of people that want to do this on a recurring basis. That led to then the research of to what extent is our risk inclination and our risk aversion indicative as to what we accomplish in life, both individually and also organizationally, and what risk posture is appropriate for an organization so that they can maximize the success and bolster their competitive advantage. So it all derived from that one time saying, I think I want to jump out of a plane because I think it'll make me a better person. So, wow, that's a lot there to unpack. But but uh, before we get to how we can apply it to uh, business, I want to go back to this decision where it's like, yeah, I like this. I'm going to go do it twice the first day I do it. And then a hundred times you said, since this is when you were 18, you did it twice that day. Oh, no, no. I did not do my first jump until I was 32. Oh, oh shoot. Okay. So, so, so this is something you're young, grade school, when you got the plant, the seed was planted but it took you know a couple decades before you actually did it. The, the problem, Darius, is there was no internet back then. I wasn't sure where to go, and I wasn't I wasn't good opening the uh, yellow pages and saying, "Here's Acme skydiving." So yeah. finally, I came across a colleague who I learned was an active skydiver, and he put me in charge with the most experienced instructor in the country, and that 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 worked out well. So for me, like I, I joke about a few things in life, but skydiving is not, not one of them, but I do have a affirmative statement I make about skydiving, which is like, which is I'm now feel like by the end of this conversation, I may change my perception on this, which was like, I don't see the upside. Like, like, yeah, like I jump out of the plane and like, it's a cool experience and I get a rush and I'm not much of a thrill seeker in that sense. So I was like, but the downside sucks. Like I die. Right. Well, let me make two comments. First off, I'm not encouraging anybody to skydive. If they want to, they should. If they don't want to, they shouldn't. It's real simple. People don't tend to be ambivalent. But I would ask you this question. If somebody's contemplating it, I would say, here's the deal. If you give me a couple hundred bucks and a couple hours of your time, and I can make you more confident, would that be a good investment? Potentially, yeah. And that's really the best reason I can give you to go through the process of doing a single skydive, because it does bolster your confidence. Because you realize if you can do something of that sort, like I said, that everything in your body says you shouldn't be doing, 
it has the it has the potential to have a profound impact. Yeah, like I watched we were, my kids and I were watching The Amazing Race, uh, season one. It, my kids are young; they're they're eight and well, they're not as young as they used to be, but they're eight eight and twelve. They'll be twelve. Uh, my oldest will be twelve this month, and my youngest is eight. And so we're watching Amazing Race season one because my wife and I were telling them about this cool show that used to be on TV. And there's a scene when I think they were like they're in Africa and they're these they're they're, they're bungee jumping right. And I'm watching them, and I'm literally getting sick to my stomach. And I was like, I couldn't, I just, how do, how do people do that? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklyn and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear, uses directed. Here's the second element I want to re- mention to you. Part of the power of doing a skydive or a bungee jump is there is an incremental possibility, very small, but present, that it won't work and you'll die. That means at some point 
you need to bridge that gap emotionally and mentally and say, this is sufficiently important to me that I'm willing to take that risk of that occurring. And I understand that for many people, that's not a valid, that's not a valid trade. For me, that was a big part of what was valuable about it because I'm one of those people that likes to control outcomes. I had to get to a point where I could accept a possibility of an outcome I couldn't control. Interesting. So, so I was like, man, it sounds like eating a lot of mushrooms, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I don't like to do either. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Darius here. And by now you might know that I'm passionate about a few things. Pizza, pink unicorns, core values, and down dirty, interesting conversation with some amazing people. However, the biggest one that I've spent most of my career on is entrepreneurship and scale. You see, look, my first few years in business, I spent like probably a good five years of my life getting my freaking teeth kicked. I mean, really getting crushed. And I learned a lot during that time period. So I spent the greater part of the last couple of years helping entrepreneurs scale their businesses in a meaningful way without going through the same growing pains that I did. And what I realized is that CEOs and business leaders don't know if they can scale and thus they do the right thing at the wrong times. This causes them to lose clarity, lose momentum, alignment, and the bottom line is you lose money. And look, you don't have to do that. It's why I created what I call the scalability assessment. And you can access it 100% for free. That's right, guys. There are perks to listening to The Greatness Machine. All you have to do is go to DariusScale.com. That's D-A-R-I-U-S scale, S-C-A-L-E.com. And there, you can check to see if your business is set up to scale properly. It's going to give you a scalability score at the end, and it's also going to give you some clarity on what you can do next. Once again, guys, that's www.itsdariusscale.com. Once again, guys, it's DariusScale.com. And now back to the show. Let me ask you a question then. Let, let's move into the risk side of this because obviously this is, and I love the explanation that, okay, well, I'm, I, this was something around giving up control to bolster one's confidence and to actually have an experience that is a profound experience, if I heard you correctly. Right. Um, what like what is the like i'm a data person i'm like okay like you asked me it would i do it it, would i do something to gain confidence and i said it depends and the reason i said it depends is i'm like it depends on what the risk and reward out uh, you know if if there's a one in a hundred chance of it not working my answer is like yeah i'll pass you know but what when we start looking at the data because i think that's where it's really important you know people take risk all the time there's tons of risk out there right now with people getting, you know, COVID or vaccinations or driving their car on the road or walking down the street. We take risk all the time and a lot of it's blind and a lot of it we don't think about. Um, but there's risk in living. What When you start to quantify the risk of, and I look at this, like I've been, you know, making arguments with people around probability of different outcomes from a health perspective in, in, in a very varying areas, especially around this whole debate right now around, you know, COVID. Um, because there is a lot of, there's data, it's still being formed, but there's a lot of data around risk people are taking depending on the type of, you know, outcomes that, that they're potentially willing to live with. Um, but I don't mean to make this political. I really meant to just make a comment because I think that that's relevant to what we're talking about here, which is, okay, well, I want to jump out of a plane. What are the odds of, of, of something bad happening to me? Hello. Uh, <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> okay, let me let me tell you this, Darius. I can prove to you, if you're a data-driven person, I can prove to you that statistically there's more fatalities per participant from bicycling than skydiving. 
Okay. And I will tell you this, I've done over 5,000 skydives. I've never yet encountered a dump truck in free fall. Bicycling, <laughs> that's going to happen. <laughs> there's, there, yeah, there's no dump trucks uh, in, in, in the sky. I've gotten it's, close to a couple of airplanes, but no, no dump trucks. So w- w- let me tell you where that takes us. Any risk, and I'm going to answer your question, and then I'm going to go. Last year, there were about 2.7 million skydives made in the United States. It was a lower number than the year before because of COVID. 2019 was about 3.3. Last year, there were 11 fatalities out of 2.7 million skydives. Wow. Everyone is tragic and should not occur. But my point is, we have done a fabulous job in the sport of skydiving to make it dramatically safer than it used to be. And, And so what I want to talk about first is perception of risk. At the top, you said we're going to talk about risk management. I'm pleased to tell you we're not going to talk about risk management. What we talk about, what I work with with my clients is risk utilization. And that's a really critical distinction. Risk management focuses on risk suppression. Risk utilization works focuses on utilizing risk as the powerful tool that it is. The problem that we have is we have, as humans, we have an innately conflicted relationship with risk, meaning that we know we need to take them mentally, intellectually, but emotionally we don't want to take them. Where does that come from? We are socialized to see risk as negative and something to avoid that makes us vulnerable. Say that, say that again one more time. We are socialized to see risk as something bad that we should avoid. Yeah. Well, I, well, I do you think that, that, that that's, it's all socialization. You think some of that's like Darwinism, like we're like, we survived by, by risk aversion and our, <laughs> D, and our DNA is like, Hey, don't let that tiger eat you. Watch out. No, That's not it. At, that's, you're hundred percent off. And here's why I say that. You're, you're a parent. What's the first child? What's the first word every child learns? Uh, no, <laughs> you got it. But what does that tell you? We start tremendously risk inclined. The problem is for the first 25 years of our life, and I reference 25 because that's when we get to a point of brain maturity where we have the judgment to balance our risk inclination. We have to have our natural high risk inclination suppressed by our authority figures. Ergo, parents, grandparents, coaches, teachers, whoever provides authority in our life. Because we don't have the ability at that point in our lives to balance to balance that risk inclination. But here's the point I would make to you, Darius. Question of you. Have you ever consciously thought about all those people that helped suppress that natural risk inclination that you were born with? Said, thanks, I made it to adulthood. I'm now going to set that script aside and write my own. No, you know, it's funny. I mean, I'm an interesting person because I've actually dealt with like like some chronic anxiety and stuff in my life. Right. And I, and I, and I've always, and, and I hadn't thought about like that part of it that, that was it, you know, like I have a grandmother that was afraid of heights, right. That wouldn't ride in escalator elevators. Right. And so was she, was her socialization around risk such that it would create, make me more risk averse. Right. Um, then maybe it was even healthy necessarily. And what's your answer? I would say it's a component of it for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, we're socialized to see risk as negative, and so therefore we just draw in. And here's one of the questions I'll pose to the to the executives I work with, and I'm going to ask you the same thing. First word that comes to mind when I say risk. Uh, death. How about like yeah, death, danger, like, which is interesting because you played danger zone. Here's the, here's the observation. If you see neg- the negative connotation of risk, you are aligned with the balance of society. If you see a positive connotation to risk, you are an outlier. Both are important insights. 
Yeah. So let's, let's move in that direction around the positive, because obviously I think intellectually listeners are going to say, yeah, I get it. Like, like risk equals potential bad outcomes. That's, that's like, I mean, I could, I could think of a positive outcome of taking risk, which is business or like, let's say you're buying a stock or something. There's risk of it losing money. There's risk of it making money that that's, that's something that I could assume as a positive outcome of, oh, I take risk by making, I mean, I do a lot of investing, um, like a lot, a lot of investing and, and I'm constant, that, but that's risk. I feel like I understand. So for me, what I tell people is I'm very risk averse until I understand the risk. What, what are your thoughts around how people can take risk to create positive outcomes in their lives or in business or even both? One of the things that we do when we're working with executive teams is we help them to identify their risk quotient, which is a concept that we developed at the Institute. RQ has nine components. It's not like an IQ or an EQ in that a higher number is better. You're looking for an accurate number. What we find is within those nine components, they'll identify those where they have a higher risk inclination and those where they have a lower risk inclination. What we know is the common thread is the following, Darius. Those where they are more risk inclined They have the perception, which is different from reality, but they have the perception that they're well-suited to drive that risk type to a positive outcome. Okay. Hence, a reduced perception of vulnerability. Hence, a higher risk inclination. So my comment is to you, whether it's investing or other areas where you're comfortable taking risks, you have a belief based on past experiences or whatever that you're well suited to drive that to a positive outcome. Okay. When you look at the areas where you, you have a lower risk inclination, you do not feel competent in that realm. It might be in the social realm, the relationship realm, intellectual realm, creative realm, spiritual realm. And as a result, lower risk inclination because of higher perceived vulnerability. That's important also organizationally because when a senior executive needs to drive their team to be more comfortable expanding their risk, their um, their uh, comfort zone in that essence, then it's important that they reduce their perception of vulnerability by providing them with the support and something that we call at the Institute a culture of permission so that they understand that they can take some risks in an environment where they might not always get positive outcomes, okay? But they know the organization is not going to retain, is not going to remain competitive unless they take some of those risks. That's item one. Item two, question of you. Can you be in business without taking risks? I, I, don't, I don't believe so. There's no scenario. Yeah. But what's curious is it doesn't receive the level of attention we believe it deserves. And the point is this. If you think about what a senior executive in an organization does, if you boil it down, Darius, everything they do all day long is about identifying the risks that need to be taken and implementing them effectively. Okay. Say that one more time. Everything they do is about... The, the, what we call the risk equation, identifying the risks that need to be taken and then implementing them effectively. That is what it is about to be the, the leader, a senior leader of an organization. It doesn't matter if it's a for-profit or a non-profit. That's what the, the entire project is about. Yet we don't tend to discuss risk openly. I think that's because it's perceived as something that's threatening. Yeah, well, I, I, I totally agree. Cause I think the, like my immediate, like visceral response is, that people need to manage risk, I guess, responsibly. Right. And, and, and how do you, as in an organization, for example, how do you create a consistency around risk tolerance? Because if I say, yeah, we're a risk taking organization, 
and I have varying degrees of risk tolerance by executive, I'm going to get a vari- variable outcomes, some of which I might be like, why the hell did you, what in your right mind made you think that was worth a risk worth taking? That's a, 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 that's a one for one on a good day, right? Every, Darius, every organization has to have instigators and mitigators. You have to have both. If you have nothing but instigators, the people who are more risk inclined, you're going to have chaos. If you have nothing but but mitigators, you're going to have not you're not going to have much forward movement. It's very important in the organizational dynamic that there be an acknowledgement of the people that fall into those categories and that they work together in a collaborative and a constructive way, because otherwise it's not going to work at all. But there needs to be a mutual respect. And my comment is, Darius, if you're an instigator. It's important that you acknowledge the people who provide you with that balance and thank them for that, because it's hard to be a mitigator because you always think, feel like you're saying no. Um, the instigators can drive people crazy. They, they, they darken the door and everybody wants to hide under their desk because they have no idea what crazy idea is going to come out next. But though some of those crazy ideas turn out to be really important to advancing the organization and bolstering their competitive advantage. So oh, man. That's so. It's not that you want to. Do you want to have certain people that have more of a risk inclination? Yeah, maybe you're in your product development people, your R and D people, your sales, your marketing people. Do you want to have people that are less risk inclined? Yeah, and your risk management people, your accounts payable people. Yeah, and but my comment is, people say, well, a good CFO is going to be somebody who's cautious. I disagree. Depends. A good CFO is going to be somebody that says. To, that says to the executive team, here, here's how we can exploit that opportunity within the bounds of our resources. I love, I love that perspective because, like, I, and you don't know this about me more than likely, but, but you know, I, I wrote a book called Core Value Equation, which is, which is all about, which is all about la- the language that we choose creates the conversations in the organization, which leads to the results. And your core values of an opportunity become the language of the organization. But what I heard you just say was that. You're really building language around risk, risk like a risk culture, right? So we're we're deciding that, and there's you're essentially creating a framework and boundaries around how people and opportunities around how people assess and manage risk in an organization. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct, and it's critical to the for the organization to advance in order to remain their competitive advantage and to be innovative, have higher levels of initiative, and to be organizationally agile. All of those things are necessary. But if the risk taking only it takes place at the very senior level, that's a problem. And if the and if you have some of your people that are naturally comfortable with risk, which is a hard skill set to train, and they're leaving the organization, it is an indictment of the culture that you've created. It needs to be revisited. How did you transition from like into this world? Because it sounds like you were you said an engineer originally. Is that correct? So engineer, very methodical, pragmatic, like you know, data driven. Uh, started doing the skydiving thing, and then now you're in this world of consulting and coaching. When did that transition happen? Well, that was fairly immediate because uh, 25 years ago, I was a member of an expedition, a skydiving expedition to the North Pole. And I came back from that, and it was a life-changing experience. And I was determined to try to figure out some way to take that experience and make it relevant to others. And so I took that and, and initially started doing travel logs, but I quickly came to realize if that was going to, if there was going to be any value to it, I had to be able to relate it to people where they were, and that experience led to then saying, "How can I take my insights into risk by virtue of personal experiences and research, and make them relevant to individuals and organizations?" 
So, so that led to the consultancy business. Uh, and what's the, what's the name of your consulting business again? It's the Research Institute for Risk Intelligence. And even though we have a few more minutes left, I'd love, where can people find you if they want to work with a, a group like yourself to build a more risk, I guess, um, what will be a word? How would you describe an organization that's that's adhering by your the principles you guys teach? How do you guys what we work with the, what our clients to do is to optimize their risk posture, and God. that might within the organization, and then help to create that culture of permission so that they're going to have the innovation initiative that they need to move forward. And, and, yeah. and where and where can they find you guys? What what's the, the website is risks plural hyphen institute dot com risks hyphen institute dot com risks plural hyphen institute.com so guys you guys need to check check out jim and and the work they're doing over there at the risks institute um but going back to so you, you launched this business this consulting business and out of that was born two books i, I want to spend the last couple minutes of the show talking about the the two book and also the two books but but really especially the power of risk which is the, the book that you guys have a second edition coming out which has a ton of updates can you can we talk about those really quickly Sure. The Power of Risk, this book is second edition. I updated it during the lockdown last year, um, brought it current. And if this is stuff that's of interest to people, that talks about everything we've discussed, plus a whole lot more. And it's focused on using risk as a personal improvement device and finding your appropriate relationship with risk. The second book is more organizationally focused. It's called Business Lessons from the Edge. And as you can see, it says, Learn how extreme athletes use intelligent risk-taking, a concept we developed here, to succeed in business. This was really a cool experience because what I did is I found 40 senior executives, entrepreneurs, CEOs, who are also extreme athletes, and effectively asked them the same question, which is, how has what you've learned in your recreational and athletic pursuits benefited you and assisted you in the business environment? So an interesting read. What what if there was one common theme in the second book, like like the thing that stood out most to you? What what would you say that is? I would say it was a, it was a broader awareness that they needed to understand that in many cases what they were talking about is they needed to have a um, in which senior executives are paid for. They need to have a, a broader perspective and be able to see further ahead than other people because when you're doing things like your flying aerobatics or your uh, are your uh, climbing Mount Everest, which actually we had some of those people are CEOs that climb Mount Everest. If you're not thinking well ahead, you're at serious risk. And the reality is what we know is senior executives tend to be much more capable of seeing further ahead than people at lesser levels. Yeah, no, that, that, it's funny you said that. Um, you know, I, I, I always tell people as CEO, like, like I, I used to say this when I was CEO of my last business, which was a pretty good sized business. We had about a thousand employees at, at the peak. Um, and this was maybe back in like 2019 or 18, when I would say this, so let's say it was 2018. I said, look for you guys, it's 2018 for me, it's 2021. You know, like one of I, the guys I interviewed, uh, it flies jets, uh, as part of his business. And his comment is my job, I'm paid to look around the corner to see what other people don't see. And the metaphor he used is when I'm 500 miles out from the airport, if I'm not already initiating my descent and my arrival plan, I'm behind the power curve. Yeah, I love that. Well, man, uh, God, this uh, this went way too fast. Um, I'm like, I'm like, we need to have like a part two, which which I'm gonna try to put on the books for us. <laughs> this was this was hard to get us scheduled. We you, you and I both are busy, but uh, why don't we do this? Let's wrap up. Um, I'd love for anyone that wants to find you, risks hyphen institute dot com. That's where they can find you. 
the power of risk, how intelligent choices will make you more successful. That's the pre-sale for the, the new edition, the second edition is on Amazon. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Both ebook and print version and also all the other platforms, Barnes & Noble, Apple, everything. And then last but not least, Business Lessons from the Edge is the book on uh, how businesses have actually leveraged it from 40 different executives, uh, extreme, uh, it sounds like extreme athletes, extreme individuals, and how they ran that, took risk into their business. That's the other book. Got it. Anything else Anything else we could share with the audience if they want to connect with you or, or uh, learn more? No, that's pretty much it. Always a pleasure to talk to people and see if there's something, somehow this makes sense and fits together. And I agree with you, Darius, we've got a whole lot more to cover. Yeah, we got way more to cover. And uh, guys, for those of you guys that are in the world of, you know, we had a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this. Uh, like I said earlier on in the show, um, the way I met Jim was through a client of mine who's a Vistage client. He has a great Vistage group. And he told me, you know, we have a lot of Vistage speakers that come in. And Jim is the first one that I've ever brought into my company because he blew my mind. So, yeah. Let me, let me conclude with a question, Darius. Oh, yeah. You mentioned all the entrepreneurs that we have out there. Are entrepreneurs uh, risk takers? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. And here's our observation at the Institute. Successful entrepreneurs are risk takers of necessity and not of choice. Think about that. I love that. <laughs> Man, uh, yeah, we're going to do part two. So this is the, <laughs> like like when, when in the last six minutes of a show, unfortunately, the, this got this was a tight schedule. But uh, like you said, oh, the one time I skydove over the North Pole, I'm like, I, and I'm like, why can't we talk about this? All right. So <laughs> we are going to do part two. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining me, man. I'm, I'm excited for us to do a part two here. And this was really fun. Look forward to it. Thanks, buddy. All right, so much gratitude. Guys, uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. We got, we got more shows coming up, brand new season, and uh, looking forward to seeing you guys. Peace out. We love you. <laughs> you are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Guys, The Greatness Machine is all about two things. People who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And we feature these messages and speakers so it can help you step into your greatness within your own life and your own business. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you're tuning in from and leave us a review. We love getting reviews for the show. If the episode made you think of someone who is leveling up in their business and life, print screen it, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to learn from one another. You can also go to our website, www.thegreatnessmachine.com. That's www.thegreatnessmachine.com. And on there, you'll see special tools to help you scale your business faster, show notes for the episode to help you integrate the lessons, and you will also get links that came out during the show. So on there, look, you can also grab a copy of my book, The Core Value Equation, which is a resource for helping CEOs and business leaders establish core values from their teams that don't suck. And mind you, a lot of them suck. Get access to this and more at www.thegreatnessmachine.com. With that said, you guys, look, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We out of here. See you guys next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests. 
like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.